0: Hello, and welcome back to Techtonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Kyle Weens, the founder of iFixit, about his initiative to crowdsource information on how to repair gadgets and the problems associated with the race for ever thinner devices. Our guest this week seeks to bridge the culture gap between Washington and Silicon Valley as the first U.S. ambassador to the tech capital.
1: A lot of the big tech companies out here uh, were having a huge impact on foreign policy and the whole suite of issues that we deal with, and in some cases, having more of an impact than some countries that we have full embassies to. The
0: voice of Zvika Krieger, the State Department's representative to Silicon Valley. He spoke to our San Francisco reporter, Hannah Kushler about what the biggest tech players are doing to tackle some of the country's most significant foreign policy challenges, from money laundering to ISIS.
2: So you have this fascinating role that I don't think anyone will know exactly what it is when I say your title, which is ambassador to Silicon Valley from not another country, but from the US State Department. Why did you develop such a role? You're the first person in it. And and what are you really charged with doing here?
1: Basically, the idea for this role came from the senior leadership of the State Department, particularly Deputy Secretary of State Tony Blinken. And the idea was that, first of all, we were realizing that a lot of the big tech companies out here, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Apples, uh, were having a huge impact on foreign policy and the whole suite of issues that we deal with at the State Department, and in some cases, having more of an impact than some countries that we have full embassies To. Yet we had nobody at the State Department whose job it was to build relationships with those companies and help collaborate with them on their engagement on the international stage. And beyond that, we were also realizing that a lot of the big issues that we deal with at the State Department were intersecting with technology as a tool. That technology, in some cases, was exacerbating some of the challenges that we were facing, but in many cases, held the potential to actually advance some of our goals and solve some of the problems that we're trying to tackle. But technology is not the strong suit of the State Department. Our foreign service officers come up through traditional international relations, policy schools, and they know you know how to do negotiations and how to write cables and how to do diplomatic engagements. But technology has not historically been part of our toolkit.
2: Was it also somewhat a reflection of the kind of distance between DC and Silicon Valley? I think that if you're, you're not here or in either of those kind of bubbles, you don't realize how separate, despite being in the same country they are, and how, you know, at least until the last few months, maybe in the run up to the USA, election you know people in silicon valley were not massively engaged with politics with news the international realm despite the fact that you know as you said these companies most of them make the majority of their money overseas and a lot of them also now are you know bigger than certain countries facebook has more people on it than in any
1: one country First of all, as you point out, the cultural gap is huge. I mean, I spend a lot of my time helping prep senior State Department officials.
2: You tell them, take your tie off.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, even, you know, dress is probably the most uh, visible cultural gap. But I think that you have two communities that think the world revolves around them, (laughs) uh, D.C. and Silicon Valley. And when they come together, they, they often don't know how to work together. People in D.C. don't understand that these Silicon Valley companies don't work for them and they can't task them to do things for them and can't just order them around. And more deeply, a lot of people in Washington don't understand how these companies can actually play productive roles in the kinds of issues we're trying to address. And on the other side, Silicon Valley companies don't understand what role government can play. Of course, there's the specifics like regulatory issues where government obviously plays a role, but there's so many avenues for collaboration between the two of us, yet Silicon Valley has sort of this derisive term for all these visitors from Washington. They call it tech tourism, or if, or if they're being a little more cynical, tech voyeurism, where people come from Washington and then they you know, say, well, we want to learn about innovation. They use that buzzword but they don't really know what that means you know but but beyond the buzzwords there is something special happening here and there is value proposition for DC coming out here and our government working with Silicon Valley and so the idea behind having a permanent presence is helping to facilitate those relationships.
2: Yeah whenever I speak to anyone in DC or go there I get this sense that there is a certain element of being in awe of the industry but very much not understanding it I, I saw that perhaps on the encryption issue you know people would say well they're really clever they can track you know everything I do on Facebook and advertisers can use all this information about me and therefore why can't they develop encryption that is as strong and has a backdoor and you're like oh but that's not how that works
1: I do think that some people in Washington do put Silicon Valley on a pedestal and have this sort of tech utopianism where they think that tech can solve everything. But there is a, sometimes for some people, a fundamental lack of understanding of what companies do out here. And whenever people want to engage quote unquote the tech sector, they say, you know, well, we have this challenge, call Facebook, call Google, you know, call Twitter, see what they can do. And Facebook will come back and say, well we're a social media platform. There are some issues that we can help with and some that we can't. And unless you have an understanding of what these companies actually do, it's hard to have a productive conversation with them. And there is a lot of frustration with these companies that they say to me, "You know, come to us with problems that, that we can actually play a role in. We're not, we're not a be-all, end-all of global challenges.
2: But you said that they are having a huge impact on foreign policy. Maybe talk a little bit about where you see the impact of an Apple or a Facebook?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I think there are certain tech policy issues, first of all, where they have an interest in them and they are driving the discussion on that, whether it's encryption or backdoor, those issues, as you mentioned, whether it's net neutrality, whether it's privacy laws, we're seeing that. In regions all over the world where these companies are really pushing the limit even you know things like airbnb and uber looking into uh, laws around sharing economy around around labor laws really pushing countries around the world to think about how technology and government intersect and then how does
2: that something like airbnb or uber ever turn up on the state department table or does it not
1: a lot of these companies Some of them don't realize it, and some of them are starting to realize it, that they in essence, are diplomats themselves. And that when we, as the U.S. government, are trying to get countries to improve their human rights situation, increase freedom of the press or freedom of expression, or strengthen their judiciary system or stabilize their currencies, we say that to them all the time as the U.S. government. And some, some governments will just roll their eyes or equivocate. But when a big multinational Tech company wants to come to town and says, We will only open an office here or enter your market. When you do those things, whether on the human rights front or the civil society front or or strengthening institutions, they're much more likely to listen to them.
2: I mean, what technologies do you look at now and think, Oh, those are going to have implications for foreign policy down the road.
1: Sure, so we've, we've been doing a series of deep dives over the past year into different technologies. Uh, earlier this year we looked into fintech, particularly bitcoin, blockchain, digital currencies. There's a whole range of foreign policy implications from bringing marginalized communities into the banking system, all the way to terror financing and how terrorist groups transfer money and money laundering and drug trafficking, uh, monetary policy. I mean, there's so many issues that we, the State Department, need to be thinking about our second big initiative here was around gene editing and CRISPR technology and thinking about how do we get ahead of that on the international stage you're looking at the gmo battle that happened you know decades ago and and how can we learn lessons from that and if we make domestic regulations here, what happens if other countries don't follow those same regulations? We might outlaw, for example, designer babies here in the US, but someone could fly overseas, get implanted with an embryo, and then just fly right back here without anyone ever knowing.
2: Is this something that maybe should almost be discussed on an international level before it reaches domestic level? Because if every country suddenly makes their own different policy on designer babies, they're going to conflict and be harder to change.
1: As the State Department, we certainly can't wait for the U.S. to make its laws first before we start having these conversations overseas, particularly because other countries are coming to us and asking us, what should we be doing about this? How should we be proceeding? And so each one of our conversations out here, we bring together the top technologists, the uh, science researchers, the startups that are leaning forward in this space, the finance folks who are investing in this space, first to get a handle on what are the trends. And we, we tend to pick trends to look at where there isn't expertise at the State Department, where there isn't even someone to write the briefing paper for our senior officials before they come to the meeting. It's really to first learn what are the trends but then not just to stop there and have an interesting intellectual conversation, but to say, what can we do as the State Department? Do we want to develop an international code of norms? Are there international regulations? Are there conventions that we need to start thinking about? And then also what forums? Is is it the United Nations? Is it the World Health Organization? World Food Program? You know, where are the right places to be having these conversations and what bilateral dialogue. Where are there countries that are leaning forward on some of these technologies that we want to learn from or countries that want to lean forward and want to learn from us? Who will be our allies and how we think about this?
2: That's really interesting. So that's really about you guys looking at the policy elements and sort of using your experience here to inform what's going on in the technology. But you've also been doing some work where you basically go and ask tech companies, you know, here are some big problems the State Department has right now, how can you help? And one of the things that really struck me, and I've heard a couple of tech companies talk about this separately from you guys, is ways that they can help with the Syrian refugee crisis, which as we know, has been one of the biggest ever movements of population. And there's sort of problems there from everything from basic safety to education. How have you been working with tech companies on that?
1: Well, refugees was actually one of the first issues that we tackled out here. And Deputy Secretary Blinken, in particular, is very passionate about this topic. And because it was the first initiative, we didn't really know how much interest there would be from the tech sector to engage with us. I mean, we really came out here as a prototype or as a pilot project to see will people want to engage with us out here? What kinds of companies and what ways would they like to engage? So we put out a shingle and said, we're going to launch an initiative around refugees. We decided to focus on education because there are two and a half million Syrian refugee children who are out of school right now. And if they don't get back into some form of educational system, they really fall risk of being another lost generation and and we didn't know how many people would show up. And we had about 100 companies come together from the big players like the Googles and the Facebooks and Microsoft to you know the ed tech companies, whether it's Coursera or Khan Academy or LRNG, down to a lot of really small and innovative startups together with NGOs, refugee organizations, foreign governments. And we did a day long convening and we decided to dispense with the typical Washington panels keynote speeches talking heads we said okay let's do three lightning talks to set the context and then we're going to actually roll up our sleeves and start to see how can the tech community help and so we brought in some design thinking facilitators from the stanford d school and we had people break up into different working groups and we said okay let's map out the experience of a refugee where are the different touch points where, where education might come into play where are their current initiatives to address those, what's working, what's not working, and then where are the gaps, and where can tech companies help fill those gaps. And then we did some really sort of blue sky, out of the box, brainstorming, ideating, as they say in the design world, to see, you know, how can we start to come up with ideas that haven't been tried yet, that the tech sector is uniquely suited to try out. And we brainstormed a bunch, picked some of them, actually started prototyping them at the workshop. And what really blew my mind is that we asked people at the end, you know, who who here, actually wants to execute these because the State Department doesn't have the resources or the bandwidth to, to execute all these ideas. And companies just started raising their hands saying, Oh, we'll do this one, we'll take that one. Small startups were were partnering with NGOs and foundations to do things in collaboration. And so I said, okay, well, you know, we'll check back with you in maybe six months to see if you've if you've made any progress on these ideas. And they said, we'll have this done in a week. And that <laughs> yeah, like they were
2: like, we're move fast and break
0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards, only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Thanks, people. I mean, it
1: blew my mind as someone who's, you know, spent the past few years working in government, just how action-oriented people are here. And so we've had some really great successes. Google, who is actually one of our partners in the convening Uh, has done some really amazing work ranging from donating tens of thousands of Chromebooks to refugees in Europe to building educational resources and funding educational resources for teachers who are on the ground in Lebanon. They've helped bring Wi-Fi connectivity to places where some of the educational modules needed connection to the internet. LinkedIn and Airbnb both have been really leading in this space. We had a great meeting at Airbnb with uh, one of the co-founders of Airbnb, and they are doing some incredible work in terms of opening their platform to refugees, giving hosts the opportunity to actually host refugees who are getting resettled in the U.S. And uh, we've been working with them on that and thinking through how we can move from just providing them a, a warm bed to actually ha- having hosts serve as sort of cultural bridges, ambassadors, sort of welcome guys to this country because in our research with refugee resettlement, we've seen that that, that's actually sometimes equally, if not more important, is having that friendly face who can help you transition into American culture.
2: The other thing that I was really fascinated about that you were working on was almost a response to how tech is being used by someone else right so we've seen isis take on social media and and use it as a very effective propaganda and recruitment tool but you have been trying to work with tech companies to try and find ways to counter those messages what are you doing there
1: that's been a really fruitful area of collaboration with the tech companies here and it's funny because for for many people outside of this space This narrative has almost emerged of of an adversarial relationship between government and tech that we are demanding that tech companies take down ISIS content or radical content.
2: I mean, I think
1: you do. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, maybe that dynamic existed in the early days, but what really defines the relationship now is these tech companies, and particularly the social media platforms, have as much an interest in taking down this content as we do, and sometimes more of an interest because... First of all, at the basic level, it's a violation of their terms of service. So we're not asking them to do anything that they wouldn't be doing anyways, but they have an interest. First of all, they obviously don't want their platform being used to recruit terrorism and propagate violence, but they want to create a safe space for their users. Their users don't want to be part of a community where, where they're coming across incitement to, to violence and radical extremism. And so they've really been leading the charge. And a lot of companies, particularly Facebook and Twitter and Google as well, have set up entire teams in their policy shops and their product shops to, to address this challenge and have developed some really forward-leaning techniques to identify radical content. How do they take it down? How do they avoid hashtags from being hijacked? How do they share best practices across companies? That's something that I was really interested to see is that a lot of these companies who are you know, bitter sworn enemy competitors, this is one of the few areas where they're really collaborating on because a lot of the content pops up, the same content is popping up on multiple platforms. And they're eager to collaborate with us, not in that, you know, they're following our orders, and they're taking marching orders from us and taking down this content. But we have expertise, we have uh, resources to bear in, in terms of our own US government efforts to identify online recruitment tools. And I, w- I would also add that the State Department has, has evolved in how we think about this topic, in that historically, we, ha- we had an office called the Counterterrorism Strategic Communication Center, a typical sort of mouthful of a government name where we were engaging with some of these extremists on social media and it was a bit of a whack-a-mole approach where we were you know targeting individual accounts and that may have worked in the early days of of the interwebs <laughs> of the of the social media but um, of course now with bots and and trolls and and all of this you know we, we needed a more systematic approach but also recognizing that the US government is often not the most credible messenger to be doing yeah. ideological battle with these one on one. In
2: fact, you might make it worse.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, putting out a very compelling video, but then having the State Department logo show up as the final frame might be undermining the potency of our message. And so, what we actually did is we brought in a team of Silicon Valley social media experts out to Washington for a sprint to do a full scale reevaluation of our strategy as a
2: silicon valley design speedy way of doing things yes
1: and so uh, i'm already internalized the jargon here and we asked them to give us recommendations based on the experts who know how to uh, leverage social media what can we do and they gave us a set of recommendations almost all of which we adopted and we ended up sort of rebranding this center that I mentioned to what we now, now call the Global Engagement Center. And we've basically staffed it with almost exclusively Silicon Valley tech experts. You know, we have uh, people who are experts in data analytics or network analysis, social media, A-B testing messages, even folks from the advertising and marketing world who are now State Department employees. They've wow, got their, to- okay. their security clearances and and they're sort of embedded bringing a more scientific and tech-forward approach to how we're dealing with this so that we can actually track analytics on what messages are resonating. We can actually build maps of the influencer network so that we can be more strategic.
2: The influencer network thing is almost like taking the kind of YouTube creator that brands are really interested in working with now in order to get their message across to teenagers, but to find those people within the kind of persuadable young muslim community in the west that you're worried about being converted find the people that have kind of cachet there and work with them and so i think that that's something that seems to make an awful lot of sense to have tech company involvement in in that it's a very obviously techie issue the other issue that i remember you telling me about and i was thinking huh you want you want those companies involved with this was nuclear tracking what are they doing there?
1: Yeah, that was a really interesting initiative that came out of our Arms Control Bureau, who had recognized that a lot of the tools that we we're using to track nuclear weapons came out of the Cold War and the threats to not just nuclear weapons, but you know, biological and chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction. Tracking them is becoming a lot more difficult as they're getting smaller and easier to smuggle and transport. And this hypothesis we had is, can we leverage new technology to come up with new ways of tracking? And so everything from internet of things and connected devices, ubiquitous sensors. Could we leverage drones and microsats and cubesats and and, and this new explosion in commercial satellite imagery? Can we leverage machine learning and AI to analyze that information? Crowdsourcing and citizen science is becoming a very potent tool in terms of collecting data. What
2: does citizen science mean?
1: Citizen science is like when everyday citizens contribute to scientific endeavors. I'll give you a good example. There was a project either called Zoo Galaxy or Galaxy Zoo, I don't remember, where they crowdsourced identifying constellations in the sky. And they put thousands and thousands of images online and everyday citizens could go in and analyze them and provide data. And they were able to process massive amounts of data in in a really short period of time and get insights that you probably couldn't get from just machine analysis of that data.
2: You have people who, you know, in between the their Sunday lunch and TV watching might just spend a little bit of time nuke tracking on the computer. Yeah, well, we actually,
1: one of the initiatives that came out of our workshop is with the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is in Monterey. They launched a platform. Uh, They were at our workshop, and we talked about this idea of, you know, well, they did it for star constellations. Can we do it for nonproliferation? And so they launched a platform called Geo4NonPro, which is exactly that. During your lunch break, you can sign on to this platform and actually analyze satellite imagery. And we had at this workshop from some of the leading satellite imagery companies in Silicon Valley, whether it's Planet Labs or EarthCast or Skybox, TerraBella, Google Earth, you know, Mapbox, people who are really on the cutting edge of using satellite data. And what was novel about that workshop is that we brought in all the typical non-proliferation geeks, you know, from uh, Lawrence Livermore National Labs and from all the, um, you know, non-proliferation scholars, but we also brought in people who had never worked on nuclear tracking because we wanted to break out of that conventional wisdom. We wanted to say, okay, we know how it's done now. Can we do it different in the future, can you know we bring, we brought people from cloud computing companies, from connected devices companies, and you know we see you're collecting data through all of these sensors. Could you actually turn that around and collect data, whether it's radiation data, chemical data, that could help us actually track nuclear weapons? And we got some really genuinely new insights that if we had just convened the same old non-proliferation policy wonks, we wouldn't have come even close to that and now we have three pilot projects that have come out of that workshop and it was so useful to the arms control bureau it was so refreshing to them and they got so many new ideas that they're actually in the process of hiring someone whose full-time job it will be to engage with silicon valley to engage with the people who came to that workshop and to expand the community of people Well,
2: that makes sense i was gonna say you've been doing a lot in the last year
1: (laughs) yeah and i think that that's the value proposition and as i mentioned like that wasn't a given when we came out here we didn't know if people were we're going to talk to us and that there is this conception that Silicon Valley is driven by making money and the state department is not rolling in money. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, and some, sometimes we sort of struggle to even keep the lights on and, People were wondering, you know, if we're not here to buy stuff, which we're generally not here to do that, will people even talk to us? And what I found is that beneath that desire to make money, which certainly, don't get me wrong, that certainly drives a lot of the conversation out here. But beneath that desire is a desire to make a difference. It was interesting. I was working with a big tech company and I had asked them if they could send you know, one or two engineers to our refugee workshop. And they ended up sending you know, almost 10 people to the workshop. And I, and I asked them, I said, why? You know, refugees is not core to your business. You know, why, why are you sending so many people? And they said, well, to be totally honest with you, we're in a war for talent. And millennials don't jump out of bed in the morning to make a search algorithm one millisecond faster. They want to work on refugees. They want to work on climate change. They want to work on preventing the spread of nuclear weapons. And so if we can send them to your workshop and then, you know, they could spend 20% of their time building out one of the ideas over the, know, the next six months. on
2: that one millisecond of search, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so th- they'll, they'll be happier. They'll be more engaged at work. They'll be more likely to stay at the company, which is their interest. And, you know, if they do something amazing that really helps people's lives, that's, you know, great benefit as well. But I, I was surprised how open people were that this social impact work is about employee engagement and yeah, about getting getting their employees feeling really fulfilled at their work.
2: So, of course, I think a lot of people listening will be thinking that's great. But will this continue under a Trump administration?
1: Well, I, I'm certainly getting that question a lot these days. And so I'm not a political appointee. So I'm able to stay here into the next administration. And a lot of the work that Deputy Secretary Blinken has done, and a lot of the department leadership has been making sure that this isn't seen as a political initiative, but something that's deeply ingrained into the fiber of the department. And so thankfully, we'll be able to continue and even expand our presence out here.
2: Well, that's really, really interesting. And I- I look forward to you following through on the projects that you've spoken to us about today and and for many more next year. Thank you very much for joining
1: us. Thanks for having me.
0: We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when we hear from Nigel Schapault, co-founder of the Open Data Institute, about the tensions between personal and private ownership of data. If you would like to comment on this week's show or suggest a topic for us to cover in future, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Key.